Okay, so again, I want to make sure you're all in the right room. So uh, this is the CSP room. If you're looking for P-knuckle, one down. And basketball, this is not the room. That's downstairs. And uh, we are here to celebrate the uh, beginning of our 16th annual One Month Scholar Series. So I just want to make sure you guys know what that means. How many other scholars have we brought for one month? Yes, that's very good. And um, our topic for this year, the overall theme is Jewish History, Jewish Thought, A Journey Through Space and Time. We are dedicating our next 23 days of programs, the memory of Bobby Cherry. I will talk more about that in just a minute. So uh, I want to wish you all a happy 2017. I understand you can wish people happy new year through this week and then that's it. So let's get out of our system. Happy 2017. In our Jewish community, we call it New Year Part 2. And I, it's awesome because we all make our New Year's resolutions six months ago, and then we get to open up and check how many we didn't do, and then some of them were ahead. So we're ahead of other people who are just starting now. Um, it is hard to believe that we had 16 years. I was looking at photos. I looked very young 16 years ago. <laughs> and now I have a, it's a weird cycle. Now I have a seven-month-old baby, so... Okay, anyway, so um, 16 years in CSP terms means uh, 15 one-month scholars, 14 summer scholars, 12 family retreats, 12 dads and kids camping trips, um, 12 community Shabbat lives, 11 adult retreats, 11 family summer camping adventures, over 500 events with some of the most interesting and inspiring speakers and presenters in the world. Yes, not Dayeno. We don't, we don't use that word in, in CSP. It is not Dayeno. Um, we also have an iTunes podcast, thanks to Grendel back there. And uh, thank you, Grendel. Uh, the site has over 200 presentations, so if this is your first event, you missed a lot. Let's see, who's here? Debbie Maylene's parents are here from which part of Florida? Hollywood, Florida. Did you hear what happened here with the Hollywood sign? Okay. You didn't hear? Oh. On, uh, on New Year's Day, someone snuck up there at 3 a.m. and changed to Hollyweed. Anyway, welcome from Hollywood, Florida. This is their first event. 200 programs on iTunes. I get, I get many strange calls because we don't have anybody to answer the phone but me. So I answer the phone and someone says, this is Dr. Someone. I'm going on vacation next week and I can't get the podcast to work. How can someone call me back and tell me how to load it onto my phone? So I called him back. I left them a long message, and hopefully they are traveling with our CSP scholar. I, you should know that people listen to us, I just want to make sure you know this as well, all around the world, all around the United States. Uh, I, you know, everywhere I go, I hear about some random person. In fact, uh, uh, Rabbi Marsha Tilchin was at a meeting in Baltimore. No, where was she? She was at the Jewish Federation meeting. What's that called? The big meeting of the, the GA. And she was in a room, and she introduced herself, introduced herself to someone, and they said, uh, you're from Orange County. That's so funny. I listened to this podcast from CSP. She's like, oh, my God. We'll get to that in a second. Um, our one-month scholar program is supported by an impact grant from Jewish Federation of Family Services, Orange County, and a generous grant from Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County. So if you are any way involved in any of those great organizations, thank you, and thanks to those organizations for supporting us. Everyone, let's do this on the podcast. Again, I want to thank all of you. You are our donors, and even though we do get generous support from the Federate, Jewish Federation Family Services and Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County, 85% of our budget comes from you. 
So um, all the money you give go to programs and to help us bring incredible scholars to Orange County like Professor Ruderman. Um, this is, this is, you guys can like stop listening for a second, but if you are listening on our podcast, I hope you're enjoying all of our programs, tonight's program, and please consider making a donation to CSP. You can go to our site, www.occsp.org, and make a contribution. Thank you. Okay, you guys back? Thank you. I was told I should do that, just in case. You never know. Uh, okay. Um, I would like to thank Sybil and Mike. Where is Sybil and Mike? Raise your hands. Thank you for hosting our One Month Scholar. Sybil and Mike have opened a bed and breakfast right next to in part of their house. 10% of the proceeds go to CSP, so please sign up after our One Month Scholar goes. That was a joke. Please do not sign. Just, oh, maybe not. Maybe that's something Mike can do. Okay. Um, a few, two upcoming programs I wanted to mention. One you may know about, one you definitely do not know about. We have our uh, 12th annual uh, CSP adult retreat coming up January 15th through 16th. Uh, the title is Renaissance Italy, the Birthplace of Modern, the Modern Jewish World with Professor Bernie Cooperman, family friend, um, at, the newest, well, at the new UCLA Conference Center. Uh, the program is basically sold out. However, if you would like to attend... See me, and we'll see what we can do. Although I need to know, like, by uh, Friday. That, that's one program you probably know about. What you don't know about is a new program, January 29th, 10.30 a.m. at, at a as-yet-to-be-disclosed location. We are very happy to present a conversation with Geza Rorig. Anybody know who Geza Rorig is? Geza is a Hungarian actor, musician, philosopher, and poet who is best known for his role in the 2015 film Son of Saul which won the Grand Prix at the 2015 Cannes Film Festival, the Golden Globe for Best Foreign film, uh, Language Film, and the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Geza is the star of the show. He'll be hanging out with us. It's a CSP member-only event. And uh, if you all come, we're going to need a very big house. So um, you'll be getting information about it probably by the end of this week. So first to RSVP is first to attend. I hope you'll join us. One more thing is... CSP heads to New York City for a part two adventure. Uh, for those of you who, who came with us last time, you survived? I hate to use the word survivor, but they did survive. It was quite a trip. Um, Ahuva, if you want to know about the trip, you can see Ahuva after the program, or you can talk to um, anybody who just raised their hands, Mike and Alita. Uh, we are going back, but uh, I don't think there'll be any, many more trips in the future. This is not a regular thing. We have. Um, over 30 people signed up already. Capacity would be 50. If you'd like to come to New York and experience um, what, uh, how Jewish America was born and what's going on now, please sign up or ask me any questions before you sign up, and uh, we'd love to have you join us. Okay, tonight, um, first of all, I want to just remember two of our um, dear CSP patrons and board members for many years, Nira Rostin and Reva Furman. I always think of them at opening night of our One Month Scholar, um, and um, I do miss them. So I just wanted to bring up their names. Uh, tonight's program is dedicated to another one of our uh, long-time um, board members and patrons of CSP, Bobby Cherry. Uh, Bobby was had been with us before she passed away a year ago, Hanukkah, just a year ago. And um, um, she served many years on our board. We have many board members who spend a lot of time with Bobby. Uh, I must say she came to almost every meeting she was always very well dressed. She brought style and 
to our board. Um, I think of her every opening night because Bobby always volunteered and she was always there. And if I had any goofy t-shirt or hat, Bobby would wear it. No problem. She welcomed people. I know many of you had the opportunity to, to know Bobby or meet her. And we wanted to dedicate um, tonight and this whole month to her memory. Uh, she is very much missed. I'm very happy to have with us today um, Shai Cherry, Bobby's son, and Rebecca, Shai's um, wife. And we have Roxanne Cherry here, Bobby's daughter, and Anna here. Um, we just, just got married to Roxanne, so mazel tov to you. Yes. It's only been a week, but... Yes. Um, so I wanted to make sure that you all think a little bit each time we have a meeting about Bobby, bring her memory to your mind. Um, I, my goal is to keep alive the memory of our donors and our patrons, um, particularly those who've been on our board, who I spent uh, an hour with every month at least. And uh, um, I would also like to say, and I would like to thank the Cherry family because they are setting up an endowment in Bobby's name to fund an annual entertaining program, hopefully uh, during Hanukkah. And so we will be celebrating Bobby's memory for years to come. So thank you very much. Shai and Roxanne, and to the Cherry family. That's a great way to remember your mom. I appreciate it. Okay, what's in store for us? Well, usually we have 30 days, but in this case we've got 23 days. We've got 20 presentations. What's unusual about this program is that uh, we have almost no repeat lectures. In fact, I think we have one. Professor Rudiman has his way of doing things, and that's how we're going to do it. Um, it's topic clusters, which made, about, it, made it very uh, challenging to put together our brochure, because as, as you can see, usually we do it in uh, chronological order, but um, we did it this year in, in clusters so that you can see how the lectures fit in. I did email you all a cheat sheet that I put together, and it's out there. It's in chronological order, so uh, it's out there if you wanted a copy. If you don't have one, you can email me if you didn't get a, if you didn't get a copy. Um, Tonight's topic we'll talk about in one second, but the general themes, um, which I'm sure the professor will go into more detail about, are three moments in the history of Jewish-Christian relations, which is a three-part evening series. It starts this week, Thursday night, in this room, or in one of these rooms up here. Um, we have a series on God and nature. We have a series, uh, five programs on debates that shape Jewish thinking and their contemporary significance from the Middle Ages to the present. We have a tale of three Jewish cities, and we have In Search of Saviors, the Messianic Impulse in Jewish History and its Consequences. So uh, this year you can't slack off. Those of you who usually attend 12 lectures will have to attend, attend 18. Those of you 18 will do 20. Um, the professor asked if people really go from lecture to lecture. I said yes. He said, will I know anybody? I said yes. You will have a group, a flock, and um, don't make me a liar. So please enjoy your scholar. You supported CSP so we could bring the scholar, and he's your scholar. My joke is usually the scholar is available to move heavy objects in the garage, clean houses. Your scholar, you just find him. Okay, that was a joke. Please don't ask him. In our, in our brochure, you, you see we have this uh, try to guess who these people are. These are all people that will be talked about during our programs. For those of you who, want, who didn't notice it, we actually have the answers on the next page in the bottom. I was going to put a picture of myself in there, but I... I <laughs> um, okay. 
Uh, at this time, please turn off your cell phones so we can get started or put them onto vibrate mode. And um, I'm going to officially start our 16th annual Manscaba welcoming Professor David Rudman and his wife Phyllis. Phyllis is over here. Phyllis, raise your hand. Here's Phyllis. She's being shy right near Shelly, near Davida. So uh, please uh, be nice to her while she's here. When she, when she leaves, you can do whatever you want, but while she's here, be nice. <laughs> Today's topic, Confessions of a Jewish Historian, Why I Study the Jewish Past. Who is Professor David Ruderman? Has anybody heard of Professor David Ruderman before? Yes. Well, see? Now you will have heard of him after this one month. Professor Ruderman is presently the Joseph Meyerhoff Professor of Modern Jewish History and was formerly Elad Darovoff, Director of the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania from 1994 through 2014. Before coming to UPenn, he taught at the University of Maryland from 74 through 83, where Professor Bernie Cooperman is, and at Yale University from 1983 to 1994. He's the author of many books and articles. Um, one of them is The World of, Jew of the Renaissance Jew. Which one do you have in front of you? The Early Modern Jew. Well, hopefully you're an author on that. because Yes, it is. And The Early Modern Jury at New Cultural History 2010. Um, I bought a copy of the book for every member. So if you didn't get a copy, just email me and I will order more and you'll get your copy. And then at our closing lecture, we'll have Professor Ruderman sign them. Is that okay? Can you, would you mind? <laughs> I will hold the check right over next to him. I'll sit. Okay, <laughs> he'll stamp your book. No. Um, three of the books, uh, including the last one that you have, won National Book Awards in Jewish History. He's also edited or co-edited five other books and co-edited two popular textbooks. Um, the Great Courses Teaching Company has produced two of his Jewish history courses, each in 24 lectures. In 2001, the National Foundation for Jewish Culture honored him with its Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in Jewish history. He is an accomplished Jewish historian. We are very lucky to have him here. He told me the only reason he came, other than he knows how important CSP is in the world of Jewish education, is because his son and daughter-in-law and two grandchildren live nearby in Rossmore, and he wanted to spend time with them. So please join me in welcoming Professor David Erdemann in our opening night. Okay, we made text, but we're going to have to have you share, because uh, I made one for every two people, but maybe one for every Good evening, uh, and thank you, Ari. Now, I have a, I'm wondering how I should start this. I, um, there, there's a Renaissance tradition. You're getting Bernie Cooperman, what, in a week or two? Uh, two weeks. He, we have a long history. Uh, so you'll learn more about the Renaissance, but you're gonna hear about the Renaissance from me as well. Uh, so there is a Renaissance um, kind of tradition. When the speaker gets up in the Renaissance, he wants to create a certain feeling of compassion for the speaker, so you won't really jump on me and attack me. I mean, you guys look very formidable. Uh, so I'm going to say I'm a little under the weather, and if you know somehow I don't perform like I'm supposed to perform, you know, wait till next time, you know. But so uh, I'm just saying that because I want compassion. But I, I'm, I'm sure the adrenaline will kick in, and I'll be fine. Uh, the first thing I want to do is thank Ari Katz for. Um, being such a, a wonderful uh, chalutz in Jewish education uh, and for what he has accomplished along with all of you. I know this is not a, a single man show. Uh, 
and your commitment to Jewish learning and education is a very powerful thing which radiates even <clears throat> as far as the East Coast. Um, I've been around uh, for a long time. I, I've been teaching Jewish history for about 45 years. Uh, and I've done a lot of what we call in the business, um, Shah, you know this word, um, uh, synagogues. Uh, gigs in synagogues, you know, uh, synagogues. Uh, in Hebrew, chalturot. Um, and so I, I know the Jewish community. and. Um, the notion that you could put this together and that your commitment to 20 or more lectures uh, and that you do this year after year and also in the summer and during the year and, and so much, um, it is really remarkable that you observe the, the mitzvah of Talmud Torah and uh, I stand in awe. I, mean, I, I haven't even met you yet and I'm already impressed by this extraordinary enterprise uh, and your commitment to Jewish learning. Um, I've also taught for years uh, rabbis, and uh, uh, I don't want to compare the rabbis to you, but I, I was going to say your, your ma'alot, your uh, extraordinary uh, accomplishments in the area of learning are, are deeply appreciated by me. Um, so here's what I want to do this evening. Um, Confessions of a Jewish Historian, that's just a very um, you know, mundane title. I want to talk about myself, not because uh, I'm an egomaniac, uh, but because I, I want to tell you a little bit about my own intellectual journey, not so much about my personal life or my grandchildren <clears throat> but, or my wife, but I, I want to talk about my own intellectual journey uh, in Jewish history and Jewish thought. Uh, and I want to do that relatively quickly, but that's the first part of what I want to do this evening. The second part is, and the third part are to teach two texts. Two texts that I adore, that I have taught for many, many years, <clears throat> that are part and parcel of who I am as a Jewish historian and even as a Jew, and to already give you a taste of the kind of journey and directions that I want to go. If you read the brochure on the first page, and I was quite uh, taken that uh, Ari put on uh, uh, a picture not only of me, this old man in the front here, <laughs> but also, um, wait, she's not there, what happened? Oh, you took her, took her out and you put it in that net. Oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Um, so anyway, but I do mention Natalie Zeman Davis, uh, who is, if those of you who know general European history know that she is an extraordinary woman and an inspiration to me. When I began some 43 years ago in Jewish studies, we were rather insecure about who we were and whether our field would be taken seriously within the university. Uh, and I needed people who cared about Jewish learning who could somehow legitimate. We don't need legitimization at this point, but at that time we did. And one of them was Natalie Zeman Davis, who was a professor at Princeton at the time. She went on to the University of Toronto. She's now uh, 89 and still writing books and leaving an impact upon the field of, of European history, and particularly on women scholars. Um, one of the things, I mean, I love this gallery you have here, but I was kind of embarrassed because there wasn't one woman there. So I, I, I apologize for it. That, that was the only uh, objection that I raised when Ari showed me this, but he went ahead anyway. I mean, unfortunately. But we will speak about women uh, as much as I can within the context of what I'm doing. Basically, this journey, uh, so let me tell you about myself first of all, and tell you, and you will see that the lectures are really a reflection of my own interests and my own passions about Jewish history. 
And many of the lectures are simply not just sort of, uh, you know, the, the thing you do when you go on, uh, on tour, but they come out of my own writing. Um, particularly the, this, the first series that we're going to start on Thursday, which is about Jewish-Christian relations. Uh, these three moments that I'm going to create all come from three different books. So, uh, <clears throat> indeed, uh, it is, uh, I do think there's a connection between one's writing and one's teaching, and I'm going to try to bring the two together in a way that is accessible and meaningful uh, to all of you. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, my father was a rabbi. Um, a reform rabbi who came from an orthodox background, uh, and thus we had a very traditional reform uh, household, so to speak. Uh, eventually my father and mother made Aliyah, uh, but at this time I had completed, uh, I was married to Phyllis, and we had uh, made our earlier Aliyah, and I had finished my doctorate at the Hebrew University, uh, and I was coming back. So my parents made Aliyah at the end of his rabbinate as we were coming back. But, of course, we, we connected by going back and forth to Israel. I grew up in a Zionist youth movement called Young Judea, which I'm sure some of you have heard of. Yudat Sayir, exactly. Um, and I was giving Sichot, uh, sort of kind of lectures under the apple tree in Camp Tel Yehuda at the age of 15 and 16. So my teaching sort of came, you know, I was sort of born with it, I, or at least I began as a teenager, uh, and I enjoy uh, very much the teaching opportunity. Um, one of the beauties of having a career that already spans uh, about 45 years uh, is that I was able to participate in the three, three of the greatest joys of my life. Um, one is writing and doing research on the Jewish past. Um, if you read the quote of Natalie Zeman Davis, <clears throat> doing scholarship or recreating the past is a kind of tichiyat ha-metim, a kind of reviving the dead. When we say on the High Holy Days, zochreinu uh, lechayim, one way of interpreting that line, we shall, we shall remember to life, or we, it's as if you are addressing the dead. You remember that they return to life when you remember them. So very much my own connection to being a Jew is resurrecting the memory of those who have departed and remembering their lives and somehow modeling or connecting my own life to them. Um, so indeed, that is, is definitely a passion of mine. Uh, and the enjoyment of creating, of reconstructing, of putting together uh, different pieces of, of a life or a world uh, is something which has been extraordinarily meaningful to me, even at this point. You will hear one of the lectures I'm going to give uh, is a lecture which is from a forthcoming book. So I'm, I'm still very much involved with the process, even though uh, you would think I would get tired of it. I, it, it is what keeps me alive and keeps me going. The other two passions, one is teaching. I've been an undergraduate teacher for uh, 45 years at three institutions you've heard. Uh, I have been blessed with 18 doctoral students. Uh, one of them, uh, indeed he was a challenging student, was Mark Epstein who was a, uh, <coughs> I wonder why you're laughing. Uh, anyway, I won't go into that. Uh, and maybe next year uh, you might have another one of my students coming, right? That's, that's a possibility, who is an extraordinary uh, young man, but I won't mention his name because uh, he has to sign on the dotted line. Um, 
But um, in any case, uh, uh, they are like children of mine, and they are uh, teaching at universities all around the country. Uh, and at these three institutions, I have taught uh, for year after year. I taught for about uh, uh, 11 years in the Wexner Foundation, uh, which some of you may have heard of before. Uh, and for me, being a, uh, I, I'm also a, an ordained reform rabbi, uh, like my father. Uh, at that time, it wasn't clear I would get a job in academia, so therefore, I figured I could always fall back on, on being a, a rabbi. Uh, but uh, thank God uh, I can uh, express my Jewishness in other ways. Um, and um, in any case, uh, the teaching has been a part and parcel of me. Most of my colleagues in, my, in the history department at Penn have already retired, uh, but I go on uh, teaching now in the falls and then in Europe in the spring. As soon as I finish here, I'm going to be off to a variety of places in Europe and Israel uh, where I have these long-established uh, gigs, and that also keeps me alive by returning me to uh, the origins. You know, there's something about writing history, actually living in a place that you're writing about, uh, which brings it alive, and that has been a, very much a part of my, of my soul, of my experience as well. So teaching is a, a second passion. The third, believe it or not, uh, is why I relate to Ari Katz, even though I just met him this evening uh, in person, <clears throat> and, and that is building institutions. Um, I think most of my academic colleagues are more or less focused on their own work and their, and their, own, their, own, their own elements, which are extremely important, of course. But I think uh, people, uh, uh, there's something about leadership, about stepping in and playing a role in building something larger than yourself. Um, and not that I'm such an altruistic guy, it's something I just enjoy doing. Uh, uh, building uh, uh, either the, the program at the University of Maryland where I began my career or uh, the Yale Judex uh, Studies program, uh, or for the last uh, 20 years, at least until 2014, uh, the Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies. The Katz Center is an institute for advanced study which invites every year 20 scholars from around the world uh, around a, a given topic. It is a beit va'ad l'chachamim, the highest level of a, a, a kind of secular yeshiva, but it's not even secular because there are religious scholars sitting with secular scholars and non-Jews and so on. They sit around a table and every Wednesday they make a presentation. Uh, and At the end of the year we publish a book and a journal called the Jewish Quarterly Review uh, it is an extraordinary uh, uh, atmosphere of higher Jewish learning that goes on and brings together European and Israeli uh, and American scholars. Um, and uh, one of my uh, uh, extraordinary passions, and I think it is a really noble profession, is snoring. Um, <laughs> that's what we have in common, right? Uh, um, so th those people are listening on podcasts, listen to what I'm saying right now. Uh, but I had the pleasure of, uh, of raising uh, lots of funds. Uh, I'm one of the few academics that really find this enjoyable. It's, it's enjoyable if you succeed. If you fail, it's not so enjoyable. Well, tell them how much you raise. So that they can well, I don't want to brag or anything, but uh, uh, $55 million. The, the, in, the institute is endowed fully. $55 million for our <clears throat> Right, right, right. Do it. That's an easy one. Um, and, uh, but of course, you know, I, I had the help of Penn alumni who are, you know, all over uh, the world uh, uh, and, um, uh, and, you know, very Jewishly committed. Penn is a very Jewish place, as you know. Uh, I'm probably the only Reform rabbi in the world. Uh, most of my classes are Orthodox Jewish kids. Uh, and somehow they, they study with me. I don't turn them off and, and they don't turn me off and we have this, this wonderful dialogue going on. But 
you know, Penn is a place where, with enormous Hillel and enormous Jewish studies program, even though the world is changing now and there are many more people coming from China and Korea and so on that seem to be overtaking all of the Jews that were once there, but there's still plenty of Jews uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. So uh, the third part of my, of my experience with life has been um, um, uh, building institutions, and I'm very proud of it, and it, it has really enriched my own life to facilitate the, the careers and the opportunities of learning of other human beings. Um, now let me just say a word about my own work, and then I will finish with this part. I'm taking too long already. Um, I began studying uh, in the Renaissance period. Uh, in fact, Bernie Cooperman and I were, were students together for one year at the Hebrew University. Um, uh, and uh, we sort of followed each other's path. Um, and my first book is called The World of a Renaissance Jew, which is my dissertation at the Hebrew University. I did my doctorate in Israel. Uh, I wanted to write uh, uh, and learn Hebrew well enough that I had no a discomfort with uh, the Hebrew language, and therefore, at that time, you had to write your dissertation in Hebrew, which was uh, quite, quite a challenge. Um, but I eventually, of course, put it into English. Uh, and then I worked in Italy for a, a period of time and became involved with a whole group of intellectual biographies. From there, I became interested, and I won't tell you the long story, the only the short version of it, uh, in the history of science. Um, uh, like Shai Cherry, by the way, I, I, I want to say what an what a honor it is to uh, be a small part of the legacy of, of the Cherry family, and I happen to have known uh, Shai, uh, Shai, uh, uh, Shai for a long period of time, uh, years ago, and in fact, I even read his dissertation years ago. So he works on Darwin and science, and therefore we have this compatibility already. Uh, so it's remarkable to see him here and, and his family, and, and it's really an honor to be part of of your experience, and, and my, my experience is, is your experience. Um, in any case, uh, I became involved with history of medicine and science uh, and wrote several books on the subject uh, and became uh, deeply involved with the notion of the religious mitzvah, of, of the relationship of the natural world uh, to being a Jew and what that meant. Uh, and I want to explore some of that, of course, as we go along in, in, this, in the course of this month. Um, as a result of my interest in science, I went from Italy and I ended up uh, in England. Uh, I really wanted an excuse at that time, this was before uh, you know, everything is online, uh, I wanted an excuse to work in, the, in London and in the British Library and so that Phyllis could come with me. Uh, and therefore I wrote two books on Anglo-Jewish history, uh, intellectual history books. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, part of that world was the world of John Locke on the one hand and Isaac Newton on the other, which was also a part of, of how Jews were confronting the modern world. So that brought me up in, in terms of the study of this period of time. Uh, at that point, and I'll just mention two more books, um, one was this book that you have just received. Um, it was based on a graduate seminar that I had given first at Yale and then at Penn. Um, on early modern Jewish history, trying to deal with the question of periodization. What is early modern as opposed to modern, as opposed to medieval? Uh, and what does it mean in terms of its significance for Jewish culture and Jewish history? So this book came out in 2010, uh, and I think it's an accessible book and will give you an idea of some of the scholarship in the period that I work in, uh, as well as my own work. Uh, and finally, and you will hear this also as a lecture, um, there was a book that I was really fascinated with called Sefer Habrit, which was written at the end of the 18th century, the Book of the Covenant. Uh, and it was a book that was written by a Kabbalist on science. 
Uh, I always felt it was too far away. What do I know about the end of the 18th century and so on? But I, you know, when you get old, you have no limitations. Just do what you want. Nobody's going to, who cares? Uh, so I began working on this book and produced uh, a book in 2014 uh, on this remarkable man and his world. This book is read by Haredim. This book is still available in print. A new edition came out just a few months ago. And Haredim, I went on, you know there's a, a chat line called Sichot Haredim, where the, the Haredim, the, the very ultra-Orthodox Jews, talk to each other online. And they're discussing, is it kosher to read Sefer Abrid or not? This is 18th century science. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, what's really remarkable about this book is it was read and it was appreciated by all kinds of Jews and all kinds of streams. So we'll, we'll talk about that as well. That was my latest book. And my most recent book deals with 19th century Jewish-Christian relations. And I'll talk about that later on as well. So as you see, I go where I, my heart takes me. Uh, and I've been very gratified by the experience of this uh, odyssey in Jewish history. And what I want to do is take you along for 20 lectures, basically, and to share with you some of this passion and feeling uh, and, and a sense of excitement in recovering our past. Okay, so that's uh, a, a fairly long-winded introduction. Now, what you all have close to you, you're sharing, right? There are two texts. Rather than speak more about myself, my wife will already tell me I spoke too long about myself um, when this is over, I'm sure. Uh, what I want to do is to share with you, oh, I lost that? Oh, okay, thank you. Um, what I want to do is share with you two texts that are very meaningful to me and have become part of my own uh, teaching for many, many years. Uh, they just didn't fit into the other 20, so I sort of wanted to put them right in here. And I want to give you a taste. Uh, each text deserves an hour, and I didn't... Uh, Ari, when did, we, when did I start? Because I'm not even timing. 7.43. Boy, this guy is tough. All right. So that means I have to be done by 8.30, correct? 8.40. Okay, between 8.30 and 8.40. Okay. So I have uh, about a half an hour to four, 35 minutes, 40 minutes to talk about two different texts and two different experiences. And I, you will see why I pick these texts. To make a long story short, let me just introduce them this way. The first text is a kind of signature of why I think Jewish studies is important. And I'm not speaking here simply about, the, I'm talking about the university. I'm talking about this extraordinary achievement <clears throat> of Jewish history, of Jewish thought, of Jewish sociology, of biblical studies, of rabbinic studies, entering the university and mainstreaming into the larger context in which we study the humanities. Uh, we struggled with this, and it took us uh, uh, several decades until this happened. The sad thing, of course, and we can discuss this also in the course of our month, is with the decline of the humanities and universities all over this country, we've made it, but we are declining along with the rest of the humanities. I mean, that's the sad thing about uh, Jewish studies and less opportunities for graduate students and, and for uh, undergraduates. But we continue still to hold our own. And I really think this is one of the great blessings of Jewish culture. I mean, we live in a very challenging world in all kinds of ways. But one of the great success stories of American Jewish life is the place of Jewish studies within the university. So the first text, as you will see, 
is what I teach Orthodox Jewish kids at Hillel. I take them and I introduce them to a 16th century text, and I say, this is why, and I ask the question, is Jewish studies Torah, as you had studied it in the yeshiva, or is it something else? And of course, my argument is it, it is, but I, I have to do it by uh, quoting a 16th century rabbi, or actually a 15th century rabbi, late 15th century, early 16th century. So that's the first text of a, a, a man named Yehuda Messer Leon. The second text is hardly well known at all. Uh, it is written by a Jew named Eliezer, and except for this one text that we have before us, uh, he's not a very important Yid. Uh, but he talks about his family. He talks about his humanity. And for me, that human connection, that resuscitating the dead, the memory of his life is important to me. And therefore, I want to end with his text. So I'm going to start in the 15th century uh, and spend 15 minutes on the first text. And then we will uh, shift to the second text. And you will get a taste of why these texts fascinate me and hopefully fascinate you as well. All right. So let me introduce the first text. And if you see, um, this is the text which has Hebrew on one side. Uh, and this text is, should be de dedicated to Ahuva because it is a text that deals with biblical rhetoric, as you will see. Even though we're talking about the 15th century, the subject, as you will see, is Bible. So skip Eliezer of Mainz and go to the second text. I'm, I'm following my sheet here, and you will see. What page? Um, well, it doesn't have a real page. It starts, I, I guess, on 143. You see that? Mm -hmm. And 145 and 147. Uh, <clears throat> those of you who read Hebrew, it's there. But of course, we're going to be focusing on the English, even though I'm, I'm tempted almost to read a line or two so you can hear the music of the Hebrew. This is Renaissance Hebrew. And uh, maybe uh, Bernie will introduce you more to that when uh, you listen to him as well. So what is this text? The author is a man named Yehuda Messer Leon. He lived at the end of the 15th century. He was a doctor. He was an Aristotelian philosopher. He lived in the cities of Mantua and Padova. Uh, if you've been to northern Italy, these are extremely important Jewish communities. Um, and they have extraordinary histories. Whether you can find Jews there now or not is another story. But clearly, the, the, the memory, the physical memory of Jews living in these communities is extraordinary. <clears throat> I actually will talk about Padua most uh, later on, because Padua was the first university. It was one of the great medical schools. Galileo went to Padua. Vesalius went to Padua. It was the first medical school to open its doors to Jews. It was the first university that opened its doors to Jews. So here is Messer Leon, trained as a physician, but not in the university, trained from another physician, who uh, was interested in Aristotelian philosophy, um, but then decided to write a book. And the book is called Sefer Nofet Sufim. Uh, it's a weird title. Um, the Book of the Honeycomb's Flow. What is it? Um, it is a book that deals with the subject of rhetoric. It is part and parcel of the humanistic curriculum of the Renaissance. Here is a Jew, and we have the expression in Hebrew, shera'ah et hanolad, that anticipated the future. Aristotle was beginning to be questioned. 
the world of the medieval cosmos was being challenged by a new Renaissance philosophy and clearly a new pedagogic uh, understanding of the world called humanism. The focus on the human, the, the famous essay, and we will be talking about actually Pico della Mirandola, the great Renaissance philosopher on Thursday, and his great oration called the Oration on the Dignity of Man, which is about the microcosm, the focus upon human beings as opposed to those in the cosmos. At this time, of course, we are speaking about a world where new ideas are being introduced, but also new forms of disseminating knowledge. And what I'm speaking in particular is the printing press. We, know, we now have, and all of my doctoral students were trained at Penn, which is the center for the study of the history of the book and the history of reading, uh, and the history of the printed page. Uh, there are extraordinary scholars at Penn, and we actually had a year at the Cat Center on the history of the Jewish book. Uh, these guys not only study what's in a book, but they study how a book is put together, how a book is created, how a book is, 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 is published, how it is uh, the, the, the front piece of the book, the, ba the end of the book, uh, how the book is sold, and so on and so forth. And this becomes a whole subfield of the study of history. Judah Messer-Leon was the first author to publish his book, written by himself in, in, in his own lifetime. The book, Nofet Sufim, was published in around 1475. When was uh, the first uh, printed book? 1440s, the Gutenberg Bible, you recall? That's the first book that was printed in the West. So we're talking about Jews getting right on the bag and right on the, on the, immediately. And not only that, Yehuda Messer Leon decides he's going to publish his own book. And he's going to introduce a whole new revolutionary agenda to the study of, of uh, 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 Italy, Italy, Italy. So Messer Leon's book is published in Mantua in 1475. Uh, so that's remarkable in itself. I mean, when I, I give a lecture to scholars who study the history of the book, unbelievable, an author is publishing his own book in 1475. Uh, books published before 1500 are called incunabula. Incunabulum is the singular. Uh, and this is a very, very rare book. Um, and we have a, uh, the, the, the original edition has been reprinted. Uh, so what we have here is a guy who was at Cornell named Harry Rabinowitz who spent his whole lifetime studying this book and translating it into English. And you have a, a small part of his little world here. Uh, the book is, what is the book? 90% it's a copying job of quoting Cicero and Quintilian. That's all it is. But it's put into Hebrew, okay? 10% is original. But the 10% is worth its weight in gold. What is this book about? It is an introduction to a whole new curriculum. What this man is saying, it's not enough to know Torah. One also has to know how to teach, how to connect, how to uh, provide an oration, how to, how to win over those people that are listening to you. It is important how you present yourself, not only what you know, but how you communicate to others. In other words, that's what rhetoric is all about. And that was an essential part of the humanistic curriculum. In the Middle Ages, rhetoric was not taken seriously as a subject that had been ignored. It, it, the need, therefore, to return to ancient Rome, where the great uh, orators, political orators, were giving speeches. Here is Messer Leon taking this work, putting it into Hebrew, but here is his innovation. Who were the first orators? Were they Cicero and Quintilian? No. 
The first great orators were Yermiyahu, Yeshayahu, Yechezkel, the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Indeed, if you want to know what is the font of rhetoric, then look at the prophets. Look at the Bible itself. That is a work of rhetoric. Those guys knew how to speak. You could hire them here at uh, your institute for the month. They would do a quite a good job. So here we have uh, a remarkable innovation. Not only is rhetoric now available to Jewish students in Hebrew, but now we know that rhetoric did not emerge in Rome, it emerged in Jerusalem. Now we come to this text. And here, I'm not going to read it to you because I don't have the time already, but I want to just show you just a few lines. In the middle of page 143, this is a section where he describes in great detail one of the qualities of being a good speaker. And that becomes a problem with an old man like me. Remembering. You know, if you forget, if you can't recall a chachtaim, one, two, you're, you're a lousy speaker. So this is a chapter on, uh, on remembering the idea of a speaker learning how to remember. But then all of a sudden, there is a divergence. There is a, he goes off on a tangent, and here is where we come in for this remarkable text. He wants to talk about the line, Torah Adonai Tmima Meshivat Nafesh. You know that line? Torah, the, 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 the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Um, he wants to say, how is the Torah perfect? So he begins to explain it, and I'm not going to read all of that and so on. But then he describes how he had an experience reading the biblical text. And if I pick up in the middle of 12, paragraph 12, you see where that is? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul from Psalm 19. You see where that is? The middle of 143. Got it? Yes. All right. In this verse, he has included two ideas. The first is that the Torah is so complete, um, meaning that nothing is lacking therein for such is completeness. That is the law entirely perfect, deficient in no entirety, and so on and so forth. The other idea is that the Torah is able to restore the soul of the place where she was hewn, whereas the Torah includes all perfection, etc., etc. So this is a kind of conventional explanation of a verse in the book of Psalms. But wait one second. Go to the next paragraph. In the days of prophecy, indeed, in the months of old, notice, by the way, if I were to read this in Hebrew, he may be a man of and so on. Every text, every line is based on a biblical verse. You can see it in English. In other words, that, that was the sign of good rhetorical writing for Jews uh, in the Renaissance period. So it's one verse connected to another verse, and it goes on and on like this. And you see how many verses are being quoted here. So in the days of prophecy, in the months of old, when out of Zion the perfection of beauty, God shined forth, we used to learn and know from the Holy Torah all the sciences and truths of reason, including all that was humanly attained, for everything is either latent therein or plainly stated. What other peoples possessed of these sciences and truths was by comparison with us, very little, so that the nations which heard the fame of us were wont to say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That's a very key line in Jewish exegesis. Am chacham benavon, a wise and discerning people. We were a wise and discerning people in the eyes of the non-Jews, in the non-Jewish world. <clears throat> but after the indwelling presence of God departed from us, when prophecy and insight ceased and the science of our men were hid, we were, I'm turning the page 145, 
no longer able to derive understanding of all scientific developments and attainments from the Torah's words. This condition, however, persists due to our own failing short, our failure to know the Torah in full perfection. Thus the matter comes to be reversed. For if after we had come to know all the sciences or some part of it, we studied the words of the Torah, then the eyes of our understanding open to the fact that the sciences are included in the Torah's words. We wonder how we could have failed to realize this from the Torah itself. <coughs> Such, now, the, here is the key line, and I'll explain all of this in a second. For when I studied the words of the Torah in the way now common among most people, I had no idea that the science of rhetoric or any part of it was included therein. But once I had studied and investigated rhetoric, searching for her as for hidden treasures, out of the treatises written by men and of nations other than our own, and afterwards came back to see what it is said of her uh, in the Torah and the Holy Scriptures, then the eyes of my understanding were opened, and I saw that as the Torah which was the giver. Between the Torah's pleasing words and stylistic elegancies, and indeed all the statues and ordinances of rhetoric, etc., etc., I'm skipping down, um, and I marvel how previously the Spirit of God passed me aforetime so that I did not know her place, where it is in. You could apply the same comparison to all other sciences. Now, what is he saying here? Anyone want to try to paraphrase what this paragraph is saying simply or go? You got it. Perfect, perfect, perfect. I couldn't have said it better. So in other words, what we're talking about here is, is I studied, I read the Torah, I read the Peshat, but then I went out and I studied in the university and I learned the academic tools and then I brought them back to the text and all of a sudden it opened up a whole world for me. I saw things in the Torah I'd never seen before. And if you read the Hebrew especially, I don't have the time to read it, I wish I, those of you that read Hebrew really look at the Hebrew here because it's really beautiful. Um, it's, it's almost a spiritual thing that comes alive here. It's something about that the academic study of rhetoric opens up a kind of spiritual vein that had been hidden from me. I come to discover my own heritage in a more deep sense than, than before because I bring the outside in because ultimately, and here of course is the myth, that all knowledge came from Judaism in the first place, so therefore I'm simply rediscovering what was my, my own in the first place. Now that may or may not uh, you know, convince us that that works, that that's really true, that all knowledge comes from Jews. Uh, many Jews like to think so. Uh, <laughs> but whether you buy that or not, what is really exciting here, and uh, I, I say here is this 15th century rabbi telling us, a physician as well, uh, who taught his students this text, by discovering, and notice the last line, and this applies to all sciences, not just rhetoric. So therefore the idea that, and this of course is very Maimonidean. I will also, there's one lecture I'm going to give on Maimonides and Alevi. Maimonidean in the sense that in order to understand who we are, we first, we draw from the outside. And we use that knowledge and that understanding and that appreciation of the larger culture that we live in to understand ourselves better. And what we come out with is not simply continuity. I hate that federation word. You don't use that word anymore, right? Uh, but we come, but, but we, we do use continuity. Sorry. Continuity is not what Jewish tradition is about. Jewish tradition is about chidushin. It's about creating something new. What we are creating in Orange County is not what we created 100 years ago in New York 
or what we created uh, several hundred years ago in Germany or in Eastern Europe and so on. We are creating a culture which links with the past, but is recreated in the context that we live in. And that's what Messer Leon was doing in the 15th century, and that's what we are doing today. All right, so that was my first text. And I gotta watch, look at the time, because Ari's gonna get mad at me. If, okay, so I have, I have time for the second text, okay. So anyway, that's my credo, and you heard it by, uh, through the words of Yuda Messer Leon. Uh, I recommend uh, the story of the publication of this text. I was told by the editor of, the, of Cornell University Press where this book was published, uh, this was, this sold the least number of copies in the history of the press. <laughs> so you won't find it, um, you know, on, on your bookshelf. Um, but Harry Rabinowitz spent his whole life translating this text and uh, it was, it was, it was a, you know, an act of love. Um, and for me, I would even argue, uh, and you see if, uh, if, if Bernie uh, follows this path or go, he'll probably go in his own way, I, I'm sure he will, um, but I see this as a kind of uh, anthem, a kind of theme of all of Italian Jewry. In other words, their desire to take from the outside uh, and to rethink Judaism. Of course, this is something, a motif of modern Judaism in general, but I would argue that in, in particular in the case of Italy, uh, th this works to understand the kind of culture that emerges in Italy. And it was the reason why I became, at the age of 15, I discovered a book on the shelf in, in, my, in the synagogue library where my father was the rabbi, and I actually still have the book in my library. It's, it says, has to be returned. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> uh, but uh, a book by Cecil Roth called The Jews of the Renaissance, which at that time was, you know, had just been written, and uh, it sort of opened up my... I wanted to find Jews who are outsiders, who can connect with a larger culture and bring this in to enrich their Judaism. So you see this text is a very, very personal, has personal meaning for me. Okay, the second text. So here is a, more, a very, very different kind of text. I'm very much an intellectual historian, but this is not an intellectual text at all. Um, go back to the first uh, page. This comes from my reader, which you'll be seeing quite often. Um, you, some of you are, are old enough to remember um, the first public television series in Jewish history called Heritage Civilization, the Jews. Remember, Abi Eben was at that time the, uh, the moderator. Uh, I had just arrived at Yale and uh, one of my colleagues approached me and said, you have six months to write a textbook for this course. The, the series is coming out. And God, the idea of public television. Uh, so. We put this reader together. We also wrote a, a narrative uh, in six months. Um, and uh, because I chose the text, they really work for me. So I keep using them year after year. And the book is still in print. Uh, although I never got any revenue, it all went to public television. But that's a good thing, right? Um, in any case, um, um, this, I have two texts here. I'm not going to really speak about the first, but only the second. The first uh, is really interesting, though. It is a text. Uh, written by a very famous uh, Jew named Judah Ibn Tibon, who was the translator of Maimonides and Halevi and the Ibn Tibon family. It's, it's not an unkosher steak. It sounds like Tibon. What, uh, um, but these, this were a group of Jewish emigres who came from Spain uh, in the 12th century and settled in Provence in southern France. And there they spent all of their careers translating uh, Jewish philosophical texts. Um, and this is an ethical will. Uh, both texts are ethical wills. Did any of your 15 scholars teach you ethical wills before, or this is the first? 
you know what an ethical will is? In Hebrew, it's called tzaba'ah. Um, an ethical will, um, you have to have a certain, you know, good image of yourself to create an ethical will. You have to think that you're ethical in the first place. Um, it is a kind of last will and testament written about your own moral behavior presented to your children and grandchildren before you die. A family document which is then passed on from generation to generation. Uh, in recent years, uh, American Jewish communities uh, have adopted the practice of writing ethical wills. It's a very interesting uh, process by which, you know, grandpa or grandma sits down to uh, talk about their own values, about uh, what they would like to accomplish for their children and for their grandchildren, and they put this in a kind of written form and it's passed on from generation. Ethical wills were also found within Islam and also within Christianity. And they emerged, of course, we could go back to the book of Proverbs and so on and talk about you know, the precursors of this genre. But the actual genre itself emerges in the Islamic world by the 11th and 12th century, becomes extremely popular throughout the Middle Ages into the early modern period and then beyond. Uh, so we have uh, th this, this notion of ethical wills. If you go uh, to uh, the Hebrew National Library, uh, in Jerusalem, and there you look up Tzaba'ah and, and there, uh, well actually you can do it now online, but I remember when I was a graduate student I was looking through a, you know, a handwritten catalog. There are virtually thousands of these wills that are available. But most of them are like this Judah Ibn Tibon text uh, written by famous uh, intellectuals. Because Jewish history is very much an intellectual history written by elites. Uh, who, who else in the Middle Ages could sit and would also have enough self-image to sit down and write this kind of thing. In the case of Ibn Tibor, I'm not going to read this text, but there's wonderful something really wonderful here. It's, it's, for me, it's autobiographical. He talks about the fact that he spent his whole life building a library, you know, creating lots of books, and, and now I have a son that couldn't care less about reading them. What am I going to do? You know, I mean, it's a horrible thing. And I sort of kind of identified with that uh, fully. Um, in any case, uh, but I'm not going to talk about that text. I want to talk about the second text. The second text is really interesting. Because Eliezer or Elazar of Mainz, we don't know anything about him except that he died in 1359. He was obviously a balabayit. He obviously had a little money so he could uh, put it into writing a text like this. Um, and what is really interesting, so in other words, uh, the, the text that was published by Israel Abrahams, uh, a very famous scholar at the end of the 19th century, calls it a will and testament of an ordinary Jew. I don't know how ordinary Eliezer was, but he certainly was no intellectual. And you can see it from this text. So what we have here is an entering into the private space, into a private world of Eliezer of Mainz, of his world as it was crumbling, as you will see in a second, and what he would like to impart to his children. Now notice, an ethical will is, of course, the ideals that you would have liked to reach, but usually you don't reach them. Right? I mean, we're all very finite human beings, and we want always better for our kids than for ourselves, and certainly for our grandchildren. So therefore, indeed, what he's talking about here is the ideals that he was not able to fulfill, but he hopes somehow his children will fulfill them. What is interesting about this text, it was written probably in Germany in the 14th century. And it was written during the period of 1348. What happened in 1348? No, no Chamelnitsky. Black Plague, right. Chamelnitsky is 1648. Um, I'm going to test you throughout this, uh, so you, you better be sharp. Uh, 1348 is the Black Plague. 
It is a period of total devastation of the Christian and the Jewish community. And it was also a period of time in which Jews were accused of poisoning the wells, of creating the plague, and therefore a whole series of pogroms broke out. And Mainz, for example, Mainz, of course, you know where Mainz is. Mainz uh, is south of Frankfurt. Um, there are three Jewish communities, the oldest Jewish communities in Northern Europe, uh, which are called in Hebrew, Kilochum. Chum is Speyer, Worms, v, the, the Vav, Worms, Vormaisa, or Worms, and Mainz. These were the first three Jewish communities in uh, Northern Germany. Uh, founded by traders, and eventually uh, to Mainz and to Worms, Rashi comes from uh, northern France, and he studies in the yeshivot uh, that were existing in this period of time. So this is the beginning of the creation of Ashkenazic culture in medieval Europe. But by the 14th century, this had all had declined, and Jewish life was evaporating, and this was a period of assault. Remember, he died in 1359. Now, I have in front of me a, a couple of quotes. What I want to do is just give you a sense of who this man is. And I can't tell you anything more about him except what's in this text. If I were to describe him simply by not knowing him, I would say, and to use the word which some of you may be familiar with, he was a yekker. You know what a yekker is? What's a yekker? Yeah, kind of uh, punctilious German Jew. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, I mean, a nice, a not nice way of, of a, a kind of anal uh, kind of Jew, right? I mean, uh, you know, but uh, I, I won't use that word. Um, oh, I just did. I'm sorry. Uh, in any case, um, he's punctilious. Notice the world that he's setting out for himself. Now, maybe I should follow the text uh, by what you're in front of you rather than using my notes. So let me do that. Um, notice on, so we are now on page 142 in the Heritage Source Reader. You see it? So I, I got to do this in about five, seven minutes, eight minutes. Notice he addresses the daughters, okay? I'm, tr I'm going to try to get females in as much as I can. Notice that in the 14th century, this Jew is speaking about both boys and girls, which is not to be taken for granted, as you can appreciate. My daughters must obey scrupulously the rules applying to women. Modesty, sanctity, reverence should mark their married lives. They should carefully watch for the signs of the beginning of their periods and keep separate from their husbands at such time. Marital intercourse must be modest and holy with a spirit of restraint and delicacy in reverence and silence. Not too romantic. <laughs> uh, they shall be very punctilious. Look and notice that word. And careful with their ritual bathing, taking with them women friends of worthy character. They shall cover their eyes until they reach their home on returning from the bath in order to behold uh, anything of an unclean nature. They must respect their husbands and must invariably amiable to them. But notice the next line. Husbands on their part must honor their wives more than themselves and treat them with tender consideration. Uh, this is a, a pre-feminist world, obviously, for a 14th century uh, Jew to talk about women with such respect should not be taken for granted. Um, if they can by any means contrive it, my sons and daughters should live in communities and not isolated from other Jews, uh, so that their sons and daughters may learn the ways of Judaism. Even if compelled to solicit from others the money to pay a teacher, they must not let the young of both sexes go without instruction of the Torah. 
Marry your children on my sons and daughters as soon as their age is ripe to members of respectable families. And notice that, in other words, to be a, a, a member of, uh, of, like you, I mean, respectable families, like sitting here. Um, um, for the, uh, and, uh, go on to the next paragraph. Every Friday morning they shall put themselves in careful trim for honoring the Sabbath, kindling the lamps while the day is still great, and in winter lighting the furnace before dark to avoid desecrating the Sabbath. For the welcome of the Sabbath, the women must prepare beautiful candles. As to games of chance, notice that Jews always had an addiction uh, in the Middle Ages. Games of chance, uh, gambling, um, Atlantic City, uh, Las Vegas, uh, these are very much Jewish traditions. Um, and, and notice he, he mentions that they shouldn't do games of chance, but obviously they did, or he wouldn't have mentioned it in the first place. Um, be very particular, I'm in the next paragraph because I'm going very quickly, be very particular to keep your houses clean and tidy. I was always scrupulous on this point for every injurious condition and sickness and poverty. Notice the emphasis on cleanliness, cleanliness of house, cleanliness of clothing, cleanliness of mouth. He's, he also, I, I was, see if we're going to get to that. In other words, this is the period of the plague. This is the period of uh, where there are bugs, there are disease all over the place. Uh, and therefore, not only is he a punctilious Jew, he is also a Jew that's living through this horrific moment uh, in Jewish history. Um, let me go on. Oh, my sons and daughters, keep thyselves far from the snare of frivolous conversation. I'm on page 143, um, which begins in tribulation, ends in destruction. Nor be ye found in the company of these light talkers. Judge ye rather every man charitably and use your best efforts to detect an honorable explanation. Try to persuade yourselves that it was your neighbor's zeal for some good end that led him to the conduct you deplore. This is the meaning of expectation, etc. To sum up, the fewer one's idle words, the, the less one's risk of slander, lying, flattery, all of them, things held in utter destination, uh, in utter uh, detestation by God. Notice again the notion of the mentality of being inconspicuous, of being careful with one's words, of not allowing oneself to, to for, fall into the snare of, of frivolousness, of, 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 of slander, et cetera, et cetera. Let me go finally to the last paragraph. As I suggested, this was not meant for publication. It was not meant to be read by us. I honestly believe that. I was written as a private family document. And I want to underscore that point by reading to you the last paragraph. It's as if we are entering into a private space that this man is sharing with his own family, which is not to be read by anyone but his close family members. But we enter into an intimate world. We enter into a, a space of a Jewish family. A Jewish family who lived centuries before us, but somehow the values that he aspires to, the values that he articulates, are still our values. I mean, there's a real sense of empathy here. There's a real sense of his humanity that comes out in the following paragraph, which I am now about to read. And with this, I will end. Do not carry my body on a bier, but in a coach. Wash me clean. Again, cleanliness. Comb my hair. Trim my nails, as I was wont to do in my lifetime, so that I may go clean to my eternal rest as I went clean to synagogue every Shabbos day. If the ordinary officials dislike the duty, let adequate payment be made to some poor man who shall render this service carefully and not perfunctorily. At a distance of 30 cubits from the grave, they shall set my coffin on the ground and drag me to the grave by a rope attached to the coffin. 
Every four cubits they shall stand and wait a while, doing this in all seven times so that I may find atonement for my sins. Put me in the ground at the right hand of my father. And if the space be a little narrow, I am sure that he loves me well enough to make room for me by his side. If this be altogether impossible, put me on his left or near my grandmother, Yuta. Should this be also be impractical, let me be buried by the side of my daughter. Obviously, his daughter had died probably during the plague itself. So I once wrote the following, and just a small paragraph, and I stop. Um, for Eliezer, with all of his individual differences, he reminds us of our own humanity, our own sense of mortality, our own frustrated goals, and our own limited achievements. When all is said and done, we too seek passionately that same tranquility, that need for belonging and affection captured so beautifully in Eliezer's fervent hope that his buried father will not mind giving up just a little space so that in death as in life, his affectionate son will remain lovingly by his side. So we are about to uh, begin our odyssey in Jewish history, at least through my eyes, and I hope you will join me, and I hope you appreciated these two texts, and we are off to a fine beginning. Thank you. Have you personally written uh, ethical will? Or have you considered it? I'm too modest a guy. I don't know. You have to be moral to write a ethical will. Um, no, I've considered it. I actually wrote, um, I, I really write for um, rabbinical journals, but uh, this ethical will, along with the Sephardic will, which I also studied, which I didn't have time to present this evening, not, not the, the one by uh, Ibn Tibon. I actually wrote up uh, as an essay which was published uh, in the Central Conference of American Rabbis Journal uh, for rabbis. Um, and um, I, um, so I, I talk about these two wills and I talk about the value of ethical wills and so on. Uh, but I've never done it myself, no. Have you? I, I did the class a couple weeks ago. Wow, okay. Oh, okay. All right. All right. What I did was, you know, I, I uh, Shai will appreciate this. Um, I, when I, uh, I finished the, the teaching company that, you know, they're 24 hours on one and 24 hours on the other. Uh, and the only, re I mean, I obviously wanted to do it because I wanted to see, you know, the, pe people don't read books these days, but maybe they'll listen to my tapes. Um, so I put all these lectures on tape, but I actually presented them to my kids and said, can you imagine when I'm gone, you can listen to me and watch me for 48 hours straight? <laughs> and they said, Abba, you're damn, you're just morbid. We're no, and, and I don't think they've read them. They're, they're waiting to watch them, and maybe after I'm gone, but they haven't looked at them yet. So we're, we're still waiting. As I understood um, from what you said when you were talking about your, your path, your um, personal path of learning and interest, that you did start to study science, and I was wondering whether your study of science uh, made you understand the Torah better, like the first... Like Messer Leon. Right. 
and, and rhetoric making him understand the Torah better? Well, I mean, that, that was really my argument for the academic study of Judaism. That I think what's happened within the university, I mean, I, I love your question because I can use it for, yeah, to, to talk about what, you know, I've spent 40 years doing, and that is, <clears throat> uh, I, I get all these yeshiva kids coming to class, and I say, I, I, I don't, I, I think your, your education is remarkable. I, can, I just finished a seminar uh, called God in Nature, uh, reading Hebrew text on science with four yeshiva bachers who can read Hebrew as well as I can read Hebrew. It was unbelievable. And we went through one text after the other and so on. And these kids are, and then they wrote these extraordinary papers and so on. Only, at, you know, there are very few universities where you can do that. But the idea here is that I can bring a certain insight. Because I'm a part of a larger community of historians who study the past in a similar way, who read historiography, who think about the past and the creative ways in which we can reconstruct that past and apply those principles to the study of Judaism that I can bring new insight and new understanding that was not available before. In other words, I see academic study of Judaism as a kind of renaissance of Jewish learning. There's never been a period in Jewish history where more books, more uh, things online, uh, uh, more uh, uh, remarkable new uh, interpretations of Judaism uh, are emerging every minute. I mean, the problem is that, uh, which is our paradox, as you well know, is that there, there's never been so much information, so much knowledge available for us as Torah Jews, but most Jews don't take advantage of it. In other words, we, we also are experiencing this extraordinary ignorance. So to see this pocket, this Garden of Eden here, uh, that, that's around me here, uh, it, it's, it's an amazing thing. But did you see science in the Torah, the way he saw rhetoric in the Torah? I saw things in the Torah using my academic disciplines that I could not have seen before, yes. And I mean Torah here, not, not simply the, the five books of Moses, not the Pentateuch, but I mean Torah in, in, in general, rabbinic texts, uh, the texts that are written by Jews in Hebrew and Aramaic over the centuries. I think I've been able to utilize my skills. Now, there are other ways of, of approaching these texts, but as an historian uh, trained in intellectual history, uh, and trained in, in how to read a text and to sensitize myself to a text uh, and able to compare it. It's also the, a comparative history. In other words, it's not simply reading the text in its own right, but putting it into context. Apply, so, so I'm really talking about history here and, and, and defining science in a much broader way. I'm not talking exactly about physics or, or, uh, or medicine and so on, even though one could, I'll give you another example. I'm reading this station now, it just came from the Hebrew University which is absolutely extraordinary. Um, you will hear, uh, I'm sure you've heard in past years, people come here and talk about Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism and so on. Um, and of course, the great figure of the, of the history of the Kabbalah was Gershon Sholom. Um, and some of you maybe even heard his name before. A young man uh, came to, what? Who's our first scholar? Gershon Sholom, <laughs> you wish. Um, in any case, um, um, this young man wrote a dissertation on Kabbalah. I'm reading it, it's in Hebrew, uh, at Ben-Gurion University, in which he studied uh, the Kabbalah of Isaac Luria, 16th century, the great Kabbalist Isaac Luria. The major disseminator of Isaac Luria was a man named Chaim Vital. Uh, those who study the Kabbalah have heard of his name. Chaim Vital also happened to be a physician and wrote medical texts. But Sholom and his school never considered the idea that he was a, a medical a person as well. What this young man did was to read Lurianic Kabbalah 
through the, through the lens of medical discourse from the 16th century. And what he comes up with is that the whole analysis of this Kabbalistic system is based on the idea of the human body and a detailed understanding of the processes that make up the human body as it was understood in the 16th century. So all of a sudden he brings the tools of medical history to bear on such an esoteric topic as Kabbalah and all of a sudden we are seeing this text in a totally different light. That's just one of hundreds of examples I could give you of what this new learning has done in terms of opening our eyes. Uh, and it, for me it's very exciting. I mean, it, it's, it is, for me, that is Torah in the sense that we are rethinking our past and constantly finding new insight in it. It is never stale, it is never just passed down, it is not continuous, but it is recreated by every generation. Uh, and in our generation, uh, there are, are extraordinary minds, you've brought many of them here already, uh, who are doing that uh, uh, every day. Let's end on that. It was excellent. Whoa. And I hope you'll appreciate me when I feel better. <laughs> so don't go. Just a few quick uh, closing remarks. First of all, uh, it was pretty awesome. You threw out this word. Is it incunabula? Incunabula. So believe it or not, I read that word last night in a book. And I was like, what the? It was in, is it, pal is it palimpsest? Is that, would that go with incunabula? No. Okay, whatever. Okay, palimpsest? Palimpsest. Yeah. And what's that? And what is a palimpsest? A palimpsest is this clay tablet right. that was written on once and then it was scratched right. and right. right. on top right. of it. You can still see right. what it is. Right. So my bedtime reading last night was a book called Sacred Trash, <laughs> which is about uh, the Cairo Geniza and um, what they discovered in there. And in one sentence, they used those two words. And I was sitting in bed. I was like, what the heck? And then you threw out the word tonight, so that's pretty funny. Uh, number two, um, we are, oh, we, we mentioned the adult retreat, so I thought I'd tell you what the topics are. The overall topic is Renaissance Italy, the birthplace of the modern Jewish world. Here are the subtopics. Uh, the ghetto of Venice 500 years ago, it's the 500th anniversary. Opportunities and problems in a gated community. That's the first topic. The second one is Shylock's daughter-in-law, adulterous sex and family property in Jewish Rome. Third topic is Rabbi Leon Medina, the fantastic failure who invented the Jewish Renaissance. And the final one was, final one is how the invention of the printing press gave us the Bible, the Talmud, and the Zohar. So if you're coming, you will enjoy. If you're not coming, would like to join us, please see me. Number three, I only have two things to say. Um, we are, uh, we have something called the CSP Hat Challenge going on. So hopefully you have your CSP hats. We had Mike Reese, the four-time Emmy Award winner writer from The Simpsons, very similar to tonight's lecture, right? Very similar. <laughs> he was here uh, about a few weeks ago, and he goes traveling to unusual places. So I gave him a CSP hat, and I said, send me a picture. So we have a picture. He's the first one in the CSP hat challenge, wearing his hat in Islamabad, Pakistan. <laughs> so hopefully you all have your hats. I'm giving the scholar and Phyllis their hats. And we hope you will, while you're here, we'll get a picture somewhere fun and take it to Europe with you and send us a picture. We have pictures now uh, in various parts of Israel, Haiti, uh, as I said, Pakistan, the New York Knicks game in Madison Square Garden. We have someone going to Cuba with their hat. Um, so please take your hat. We have a few left if you didn't get your hat. And take it somewhere fun and send me a picture. We'll put it up on our site. So here's your hat. Thank you. Thank you.
is also to wish you a sunny stay. They just arrived, of course, it's 59 degrees, overcast and rainy. And they think that's great weather because they're from Philadelphia. <laughs> um, I want to close where we started by uh, bringing up the memory of Bobby Cherry. I felt Bobby in the room. Um, and I wanted to thank the Cherries for being here tonight. And uh, your mom was a wonderful lady. She was beautiful outside and inside. She hosted our summer scholar programs in her backyard. Remember, those of you who were there, uh, we had horses go by as the lecturers spoke. Um, as I mentioned, she came to every uh, board meeting. Um, you should know she talked about you, Roxanne, and you, Shai, at every board meeting. She would give us updates about your lives. Um, she loved you tremendously. We loved Bobby. When you're part of CSP, you're part of our family. We don't forget you. We bring, our, just like the scholars said, we bring back people who may have passed away. We bring them back to be with us at our events. Um, and some of you have loved ones who have also um, passed away, but they're still with us here um, at our events. Uh, we have people who are alive who can't be here today because of a variety of injuries. Ofra Wilner, I emailed you, fell and actually broke. Um, is it a vertebra or a vertebrae? Which is the singular? What did she break? More than one? Just one. And uh, Amy went down to see her today at the Clifton, and she would love to have visitors. She's going crazy sitting there watching game shows. So please maybe go down and visit her. And I'm told if you bring her a Jewish food item, that will make her very happy. But I think just having you down there to say hi would be appreciated. So... Um, I call to, or, uh, to open our 16th annual one-month scholar program. Thank you all for coming. You ate every dessert back there, I think. <laughs> I was going to take something home to Amy. Oh, well. Enjoy the one-month scholar. Thank you. <laughs>